Mockingbird, I will be free. I will be free without you watching me. Not in a cage, I want to go every place for the world. Welcome to a special edition of the Mocking Cast. That voice you heard was the voice of Jim Nabel, who is a singer, songwriter, playwright, teacher, and the Jubidor of Unorthodox, the podcast, whose host we had on last week. And uh, I've been an admirer of Jim's musical work from Unorthodox. Didn't realize how prolific he was, and I decided to sit down and talk with him and have him play a little music and talk about his work. And we did it on Election Day, and this is the Mockingbird special edition, uh, the the post-election hangover blues of the podcast. You know, people all, all across the country are frustrated and feeling cynical, angry, hurt, some excited. People are all over the map. But I, it was so great on Election Day to not really talk about the election and just sit down with a wonderful human being and have a nice, authentic, fun conversation and hear some great music. So I share the conversation with you if you've got the election hangover blues and need a distraction. And I'd like to dedicate this podcast, this special podcast, to another very special person, the most special person I know, my beloved and lovely wife, Lindy Jones. Today, November 10th, is her birthday. Happy birthday, Lindy. Now I give you the Jubador, Jim Nabel. Jim Nabel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You have a K in your name, but it's silent. It's always been silent. Uh, that's a lie, actually. It was uh, used to be pronounced until my great-grandmother changed it. It used to be Knobel, and it was spelled K-N-A-B-E-L. And then my great-grandmother Rose decided after she had lost and I think regained her citizenship because she married an Austrian, she decided to, to change it at some point to the silent K and the L-E. Now, was there like an ethnicity? Like, like I mean, when you change a K, was it just like... I guess it makes it less ger- German-sounding, maybe? I don't all right, know. so it was sort of a... Yeah. A milk-toasting of the, of the something... It was it was just kind of a weird choice. I don't know. I'm not really sure. There are other Nables in the world. I didn't know there were any uh, for a while. Growing up, I was the only Nable. So it was like Highlander. There can only be one. Yes, and I felt very much like that. I think uh, there was a there's a movie called Stay Tuned where there's a character. I think his name is Roy Nable, who's played by Jack Ritter. So that was the first time I really heard of another Nable. Jack Ritter, like the from Three's Company. Yes. And it's the concept is that I, I think that he jumps around different TV shows. I mean, he's a human being who goes inside of TV shows and jumps around. That's why it's called Stay Tuned. I always wanted to have that with like Jack Bauer. It's like, yeah, what if you just had like, when, 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 when heroes are in trouble, like what if you could just throw Jack Bauer in for 30 minutes? Because that guy can get more done in 30 minutes. I thought you meant if your name were Jack Bauer. No, I was just thinking like if you could, like I always think about that, like gosh. They don't have much time in this What is it like dilemma. for somebody named James Bond to yeah, exactly. go around and they ask your name? Jim. No, it's Jim. No, Jim. There's a little story. I did some research. Yeah. There's a little story behind Jim. 
You were you were you were not born, Jim. No. There's a lot of name changing in my family. Um, I, yeah, I decided to be Jim when I was about seven. Um, and I just heard recently that my first grade teacher, who I think is the first one of the first adults, at least that I tried the name change out with, is still going and still going strong. Her name used to be Mrs. Ramsey. Now it's I think Mrs. Wright. But anyway, so I asked to be called Jim. It was either in her class or the next class. Like first day of school, like first day, like yeah. So okay, your name, and you're like, I'm going for it. I'm Jim. Yeah, something like that. I think I tried it out with another kid at a playground one time, and, and that's something that kids do around that age often is they try out new names. Uh, my son, whose name is Jameson, went, was going by Jace for a while, and he had like this al- alternate personality of Jace who would act very differently than Jameson. So it's, I think it's something that kids play with. Was how phonetically close was your given name to Jim? I mean, because Jace and Jameson are not; they don't strike me as. Yeah, no, Miles was my given name. So. Oh, you reve- did you, where, have you ever yeah. revealed that anywhere? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay, totally. I thought I got the scoop. I was going to tweet that out. Oh, no, sorry. Big scoop on election day. No, in fact, my, my first solo album is called Miles. So it's Jim Nabel, and then the album title is Miles. That's so interesting. I mean, this is, a, this is an aural medium, so you're not going to get the full effect of this. But something I realized when I was in my early 20s was that if you take the capital letters of the, world, the word Miles and put them against a mirror, you will see that Jim is embedded backwards in the word miles. The L turns into a J. Ah. And you could even pronounce it, the S-E, like say. So say Jim, miles, backwards. Are you really good at like Sudoku and things like that? No, I hate that. Okay. I just think, or word jumbles. No, I don't like Scrabble either. Well, it's impressive that you know that, those sorts of things. Well, it took me until I was in my early 20s to figure that out. All right. Well, maybe a late bloomer then on those kind of. Well, that's true. Yeah, possibly. So I know of you and your work because of the Unorthodox podcast, and you have done some music on their podcast, and you are here in. We are St. George's Studio, St. George's. I like to call it. I just made that up now, but so I should. It's it's really, uh, it's really not true that I like to call it because. Oh, then maybe it is because I do like it now that I've what called if we, it. That. What if we called it Saint Udio? Saint Udio, I like that. Saint Udio, George's Saint, because SK Saint Udio. The, yeah, this is why I don't do Sudoku. 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 Scrabble. Sudoku. So we're drinking whiskey, which we did with Leo. I think you're the only other guest on the podcast that right, and we've just started, and we've just started. So this is great. Um, you would do how did no you know Mark Oppenheimer from college? Yes, we went to college, and uh, I think we were friends. Just kind of one of those, you know, before Facebook, Facebook friendships. I think, like we kind of respected each other. I think and and appreciated each other, but we we've gotten much closer since uh, I don't know since two weeks ago when we shared a car ride from Boston to New Haven. So, I, I don't know. We're we're sort of like soulmates, but we. Didn't meet. It sounds. It, it sounds like the beginning of a movie. Like we we were in a car ride years ago in college. Yeah, we were soulmates, but didn't meet. And then we were on a road. It's sort of like when Harry met Sally, but different. Yeah. So you, Mark. It's he's like an extrovert's extrovert. He is, and I'm kind of an introvert's extrovert. An introvert's extrovert. Yeah. <laughs> so you do. You do like actually. I'm more of an extrovert. Introvert. Okay. Yeah, it's more like that. All right. Yeah, I'm. I used to think I was pretty extroverted until I spent like an hour with Mark in New Haven, and I was like, okay, 
I, I'm not. He is really. Well, yeah, but he's really thoughtful too. So it's like he he is an introvert who is always extroverting. It's like if you turned an introvert inside out. Well, he I think too like ex, extroverts are external processors. So he has to talk in order to process. Yes, I yeah. mean that's how I am too. I think so. that's right. That's interesting. It takes me a while to get there. They say in communication things, if someone's an introvert and you're asking them something that's a pretty serious question, you get to give them nine seconds. Because they got to do their internal. Now, I don't know why nine seconds was made, and I don't know who they are. It took me about nine seconds to process what you just said. So, yeah, that, that might be it. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting is you and Mark weren't in regular touch, and all of a sudden he says he's followed your music career. Yeah, which is fascinating because I forget how he did that, but I guess he did. Maybe he saw a concert. But um, yeah, then he then he called and said, well, you left a message saying, you know, kind of cryptically, I have a project that you might be right for. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And then we talked about it and it was um, setting the, the email letters to the Unorthodox podcast um, to music. So that was my first thing that I did with them. That was hilarious. It was their Thanksgiving show. And, yes. And basically they yeah. had... So they like had, a year ago. Yeah, they had some hilarious listener mail and yeah. they read a couple of them and then you took a, bu- a bulk of the all-star letters and wrote them and composed a song that was hilarious thank you yeah no that was a lot of fun and i think something that i enjoy doing as a songwriter is working with found material and creating songs out of stuff that's not necessarily meant to be sung and that's 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 something i'm realizing that i actually like and am doing more of now especially with unorthodox yeah, and you're, I mean, you just did a lot. They did a live show. Yeah. It was in, is in Newton? In Newton. Massachusetts. It's it's sexier to call it Boston, but it was Newton. It's like yeah. sexier to call it the Boston show, but yeah. it was Newton. And you like just basically, I was blown away. You just did a song that was the summary of the content of the show. Right. Well, that's how it sounded in the final product. We actually went, uh, there was a segment where I asked the audience to give me some Basically, lines. I had started with a line that was, it's almost over. And we were talking about, you know, the election that's happening as we record this. Um, and then somebody said, I don't need a moil. And it kind of, it went on, it went on from there. Right. So it's sort of like, it was a bunch of phrases that were kind of connected to the main idea. But then it was my job to go away for about 20 minutes and shape them into a song. And your other hits, you've done something about, what was the tune that was like, dun? Well, that was Leal's suggestion, actually. In fact, he gave me most of the lyrics. I did a little bit of tweaking with the lyrics, but it was the, the girl from Tel Aviv <laughs> as opposed to the girl from Ipanema. That was amazing. Yeah. And my favorite was, which, yeah, they, I mean, I thought I've never heard any, anything comedically quite that amazing um, in an acoustic guitar form, but the, the, when... They were talking about the Holocaust survivor beauty pageant. And there's actually a Holocaust survivor yeah. beauty pageant, which is amazing. Right, for a limited time. Yeah, for, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, this is not a, this is not a, 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 an ongoing forever right. kind, of, kind of thing. But you wrote a song called My Holocaust Survivor Beauty, beauty Pageant. Beauty Pageant, sweet. Cutie Pie. Cutie Pie, which yeah. I, I think it is, will go on past the pageant in comedic memory. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I I started out writing what I thought was a comedic song and then um, it turned into something a little bit more uh, 
I was going to say pathetic. That wasn't the word I meant, but it had more pathos. It did have pathos. You you talked about uh, Victor Frankl or uh, Man Search yes. for Meaning, right? Yeah, you, yes. you, Man Search for Meaning. Yeah, it was yeah. great. I mean, it was it was, it was great. So the, I had no idea the degree to which how prolific you are. You know, even before when I asked you the idea of coming on the podcast, and then I, I had no idea how many plays you had written and the breadth of your musical work, and also uh, you wrote a great piece for Tablet about. Leonard Cohen, you said that yeah. in the piece you said, look, I, I realized quickly on my music career, I wanted to be the next Bob Dylan, but realized that like Dylan, you know, really lived off the mythology of who was early and nobody could replicate that. But you said, I could still be yeah. the next Leonard Cohen. And your early, some of your early stuff was compared to Leonard Cohen's in critical reviews. Well, sure. We could say it's critical reviews. It's mainly like people in the audience were like, that's kind of like Leonard Cohen, right? And maybe yeah. some of the people yeah. in the audience were critical reviewers. Yeah, well, let's go with that. I like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought your insights into you're and you're still a Leonard Cohen fan. Oh yeah. No, I definitely I really uh I like Leonard Cohen a lot. Um and he is inspirational. You know, I wanted to write that because I felt like he was inspirational to me as an eighty two year old songwriter who really got his start in his thirties as a songwriter. Um and kind of jumped into a world that is not really meant for his age group, but somehow approached it from, um, as a poet. And that kind of made sense for him at that time, um, in that time. Um, and then he kind of continued writing as an adult and that, that was sort of where he was coming from. So I figured I could, I could still aim for that. I, obviously I don't think I could actually be the next Leonard Cohen, but you know, it would be nice to be, you know, if, if he's on the, what floor is he in, in the Tower of Song? Well, whatever floor he's in, I would, would, might be in like the basement. But if I were in the same tower, that would be great. If you're just in the building. Sure. The, he, the parking garage. Exactly. The attendant. Sure. What about the person that fixes the machine? when? It, so you're not always in the thing, but when the, when the parking garage breaks. That, that might be pushing it. Well, okay. That, yeah. would, that would feel like you're real. Then you're not really in like, the tower. Then it's like, yeah, why anyway. bother? Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to just... Because if you feel worse about yourself when you go in the tower because you're reminded that you're not in the tower and you're is, sort of... This is getting really depressing. <laughs> um, yeah, so is, is some of the thing too that as an artist, singer, songwriter, and also a playwright, mm-hmm. I mean, you know the importance of being able to invent and reinvent. And it's something about Cohen, the ability to kind of rediscover his story or, or kind of reinvent himself in a way that's, that's not inauthentic. Yeah. But, but that really adapts to a new time and a new place. I mean, I guess any artist, creative artist, is always trying to do that. Well, yeah, any, any artist with that kind of longevity. Uh, and that's something that Bob Dylan does quite a bit. I mean, other, other acts are really kind of stuck in their, their sort of hot era. And they're, they're always kind of replicating that whenever they go out. You know, people argue that the, the Rolling Stones are always kind of doing the same Rolling Stones thing they did when they were in their 20s. And um, I don't know if that's entirely true because there's something about that music that somehow works when they do it like that. But it's not evol- And they're great evolving. performers. I mean, they're just great. Right. Some people are just right. great performers. And yeah. some people are not as yeah dynamic as performers. Like Springsteen. I mean, that, that guy yeah. is just, a, he's a consummate yeah. performer. I mean. Sure. And I guess you could be a great musician studio musician and not be a great performer i mean you could you could sure yeah. uh like uh nick drake for instance who was uh recorded some great music but he was terribly introverted 
Um, Cat Stevens also did not like performing at all. Definitely, you know, loved the studio, but didn't like performing live. Do you like performing live? Yes, I do. And that's, I think that's the one place where I feel comfortable being extroverted. Um, and I think it's because of that relationship with an audience that instead of having to fight for who's talking next, next or, um, figure out what my place is in the conversation, it's very clear that I'm the one performing and they're the, the people that are listening. And if, um, if I'm engaging them, it's sort of on my terms. I, I, there's got to be such a, a, a rush to when people are, I mean, they, they're coming, they want to see you and you offer them something that they really enjoy. I mean, yeah. gotta, there's got to be a tremendous sense of sense. Yeah. No, there really is. I mean, and the, the best um, feeling I get from it, uh, same, same with plays, is giving anyone something that it seems like they really need at that moment, whether that's the laughter or whether that's just kind of feeling connected and just having a moment um, outside of themselves or into themselves or something. But my, you know, my favorite feedback from any audience has to do with that. That meant a lot to me, that line or that song or um, that's, that's what really makes me excited to perform. Yeah. I want to, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your plays, but yeah. first, could you play something for us? Sure. Any requests? Was it women wear wear masks? Okay, that's a good. That's that'll get me extroverted. That's a fun song. Five women masks. Yeah, five women look like men. Yeah, five women masks look like men. Yeah. So this is a song <clears throat> that I wrote after looking at a painting, uh, and then perfected in the desert and arches, uh, what you call it in in Utah. It's great state. Yeah. Well. Yeah.
went up by the pole to fight the wind and tend the cold. Come here beside me and feel my soul. You know that I will brave you and we don't know where we're going. We don't know where we've been. Knowing what we're knowing. Oh, we don't in circles through the fire call each other's bluffs and wires keep the stuff we need to desire to make the rest a record sometimes you'll wish you were somebody else sometimes you'll finally feel like yourself That was really fun. <laughs> I, I, I've never, I've never, uh, we've interviewed one musician before, but never, but he didn't play. This guy named Derek Webb, but he didn't play. That was really, that was a lot. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Oh, well, th thanks for giving me the chance to. It's an interesting environment to do that song in. Yeah. Could you say more about this song? Um, I mean, Utah. So you have, it, it, I, on the po I podcast, I just, I just remember walking around that that uh, Arches National Park and playing that song in the desert. And this was in 2001. This is an older song, and uh, it was a significant time because my then kind of fairly new girlfriend, but we were very close and now wife. Um, we both ended up together in Sacramento, my hometown, and we're supposed to fly back on September 11, 2001. Um, from Sacramento, and we didn't obviously. It didn't work out. Uh, so we were kind of stuck there, trying to figure out what we were going to do for a while, and then we ultimately decided to drive back across the country because uh, we didn't really want to fly, and we didn't want to fly separately. Our original tickets were separate, so we we did this cross country trip, and we ended up stopping along the way in various places. One of them was was Arches, and. Uh, so I didn't write this song there, but I, I definitely feel it's connected to there because I just remember that feeling of making this pilgrimage with her and knowing how kind of important she was and, and might be. And it was, it was a very spiritual kind of place. It was, uh, you know, it meant a lot to me. And the song itself is kind of both intentionally cryptic. And yet I, every time I sing it, I find meaning in certain lines. You know, it's very consciously Dylan-esque in a lot of ways. Um, so I don't want to go too much into, you know, what, what things I think mean what. But, you know, singing about ambassadors and pony stalls and things falling and what's connected to what's happening now and 
um, I don't know. Song, connected to what's happening now in what sense? Well, I always think of politicians. Somehow when I say ambassadors, I really mean politicians. <laughs> uh, politicians would be too obvious, I guess. I, I don't think people sing about ambassadors enough. So, uh, but then, you know, the line, the line about um, sometimes you wish you were somebody else, sometimes you finally feel like yourself. I always identify with that. Um, and I feel like that's kind of a universal feeling. So when I, when I hit that line, I always feel very connected to a real or imagined audience, whether anybody else actually gets that or not. I never actually really heard the feedback on that. But, uh, and that's interesting because you're in the intense courtship dating process with someone you're connected deeply to. Because I always think yeah. dating, the challenge of that is like, what we all want is somebody to love us unconditionally, warts and all. So what we try to do is pawn off somebody on somebody that's kind of the polished up and maybe less authentic version of stuff. So they get roped in. So then we can take that mask off and say, well, this is right. And then hopefully they'll yeah. accept us in the midst of that. So I always think dating is such an interesting, because cause, cause the, the means of it are almost intention with the end of it. If it goes well. Yeah. Well, and I think our relationship too is like, I think we dated for like a date and then we were really kind of just together. So by that point, especially, I mean, the masks were off on that, on that road trip. If you take a, a serious road trip with anybody, you get to see all, all different sides of them. And that was a good test for both of us. I think. Um, How'd you guys meet? Uh, we met because she was producing uh, a play festival in Soho Rep in the summer of 2001. It's a big year. Um, and I had a play, I had a full-length play that she she chose before she met me. What was the play? It's called True and Solid Ground. It's about, uh, it's based on a real story of a North Korean fighter pilot who defected to China. But in, in my play, it's a uh, same thing, North Korean fighter pilot, but he ends up in this like imaginary country inside of China called Burbot. It's run by a um, sort of despotic hunchback and then his wife, who's back at home, who's being tortured for information about him, ends up falling in love with her torturer. So they also defect, and they end up in the same imaginary country in China. And uh, there's also a captive um, former queen of Egypt who's in this country. It's kind of a, in a period where I was writing a lot of really fantastical, theatrical, imaginary plays that were less based in reality, but were, you know, Fun and symbolic. Was she like? So, did she know you were a songwriter and singer? Yeah, I think that was one of the hooks. Okay, because yeah. because I'm thinking her, I asked her to a gig. Okay, but because yeah. that's got to be if she's into artistic guys, and then you're you're writing plays, you're a singer. So I mean, that's pretty. You're. you're I mean, that's got to feel great. Yeah, I, the good lead-in. Right. That's right. It's something you discover as, as a performer is that people are actually interested in that. So it's, um, so it was Green Man. You said. Wait, what? No, that play was True and Solid Ground. Oh, True and Solid Ground, rather. Yeah. So this did not follow Aristotle's three movements. True and Solid Ground, right? It was not Aristotelian. No. Because the Curse of Atreus does. Which yes. you taught, I actually was... Curse of Atreus is one of my more recent plays. Yes. yes. And, it, well, it's, it, I mean, I, who is it? What, um, the guy who wrote, I forget the name of the film it was with Richard Gere and it was he's like this investment hedge fund guy and there's kind of a murder mystery element to it's it like officer and gentleman no it's really recent but it's oh. this 
guy who's a he was I don't know I just remember him saying in a Terry Gross interview it's like two or three years ago that Aristotle's Poetics is like a twenty page primer for all screenwriters if you get if you get the Poetics I've heard there. That. And I, I like to pretend that I've actually read it all the way through. I think I, I have a sort of a diluted version of it. But he said in the movements, it's it's like everything's got to be like an epic. It can go like sort of longer, right? And stretch out over time. But if, if, if you're doing it on three movements, like the tragedy, it's got to be like one day. It's got to have like one storyline and it's got to kind of… It, 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 it's got to have a limit, and so one, that's one place where it's set. One so place, right? Yeah. Time, place, and action. Time, place, and action all got to be intense. So, what? Why? Why? Aristotle's movements. Why this is also about like there's issues of race, right? Police, race, and the, and the, and the police. And right. well, this is a play. It's kind of a, a trapped in a room sort of play, which often follows that um, those three unities anyway. Um, but it's a white motorcycle cop who gets a. Flat tire, his front tire, uh, which is really bad. I had to consult somebody who's a, who's a motorcycle rider and gave me all the information about this. And uh, he survives and ends up uh, at this garage of a black female mechanics who is the only person around who could possibly fix it. And he definitely wants it done on the down low because he's really embarrassed about it. He's a rookie cop. Um, and she's kind of enjoying at first playing with him, messing with him a little bit. Um, kind of making him go get cash for it at ATMs that she knows aren't going to work. And, um, you know, just kind of showing that she knows more about motorcycles than he does. Um, so that's, that's where the place starts. And then eventually her son shows up while he's out in an ATM and get their relationship. And she's, um, a, a single mom by choice because she's actually left her husband to be with women. And, uh, you know, they, they have a very kind of adult relationship in terms of he's, uh, teenager but you know they're on kind of equal footing in a lot of ways um but she also doesn't want him to screw up his chances um, so kid goes away and the cop comes back i'm not gonna give away the whole story but um the big dramatic thing that happens about halfway through the play is that we find out that there has been some kind of a possible car theft and someone who fits the description of the son and uh, events ensue and the stakes get you know raised very quickly in the second half um and it becomes about dangerous choices and what sort of, you know, trying to follow to the ultimate extremes, the kind of racial tension that we have in this country um, and looking at it through the lens of Greek tragedy with a, with a capital T where there is not just the three unities, but the idea that um, by the end of the play, it's not that things are set right. It's more Elizabethan. It's more that we've reached the ultimate conclusion and commentary on the cyclical nature of tragedy and how it never seems to stop perpetuating itself. Um, when did so you start writing it? Uh, 2014 in the summer, um, which is when you know, Ferguson was, was happening. And it was something where I was very caught up in that news and also um, news from Israel and Palestine. And I ended up, you know, that I think of you know, years in academic years because I teach um, so that year I ended up writing both The Curse of Atreus and then another play called Star Crossing, which has to do with an um, uh, American Jewish boy with a Zionist mother who meets a Palestinian girl who's visiting New York with a theater group. They're putting on Romeo and Juliet and they fall in love. And so I, it was kind of like my year of writing about the 
the issues that were going on in the world. And, and like as you're writing, in some ways they're getting increasingly tense. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, I, and you know, obviously with the curse of Atreus, now it's uh, and you can hear our listeners can hear this. It's it, it, yeah, it's so a twelve place twelve twelve Piers Theater, which is in Pittsburgh, is doing this really cool thing where they're doing they're like sort of like broadcast play readings. They get some rehearsal um, and some editing, but it's essentially like if you've ever been to a, a stage reading of a play, you know, you sit in the audience and you watch the actors at music stands read a play. So it's not a production. Um, because it's in this format, I guess it has something in common with radio plays, but it's not quite a radio play. It's, you hear the stage directions. It's not meant to be a full production. Um, it's meant to be but a reading experience that more than uh, the people that might be able to come to the reading experience are able to hear. So that's actually it's on their website, which I think is 12 Peers Theater. 12PeersTheater.Libson.com is where you can hear the recording. You can hear the recording. Yeah. This is, you know, I'm, I've really... Or, or you could just go to my website. Or you could just go to tells Jim, you where to go. Yeah. JimNable.com, which is a... I, I was just telling you before we started recording that I like your website. Thank you. Very. And thanks to Hamish Robertson, who, who designed it very quickly for me. Hamish. Hamish. That's a great name. Mm. I agree. I agree. I would, I would name a son after him, but I don't, I'm not sure a son of mine could pull off the name Hamish. Yeah, I, I, a son of anybody. I mean, who, I mean it's very, you know... He does. He's he's English. Yeah. So well, there, yeah. There you go. Well, I'd like to ask you in a minute about your religious identity a little bit because it okay. connects to unorthodox and it's very. It strikes me as interesting. Yeah. At least your. But could you play something else for us? Okay. Well, this is a good lead into it. I, yeah, let's see if it works. <laughs> I had a little white book when I was young Told the story of a people whose time had come That wandered the earth just to say where they were coming from well, I chose long ago to be persecuted, to be ill-reputed, and to be excluded. Then the sea opened up, and they walked right through it to freedom. Freedom from the blood on the door. Freedom from the mud on the floor. Freedom, and if you don't know what for, you're the Got a couple of Kyams and several Sylvesters Got a McIntyre slowed and they're all on the boat to freedom
time had come Wandered the earth just to say where they were coming from Well, they roamed and they roamed and they never looked back And they were on their own, they were under attack When I think of myself like that, I think that I need them That was great. You were, you were talking about Mormons, right? Yes. Definitely, <laughs> definitely Rastafarians. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I actually thought it sounded like New England Congregationalists. There, no. <laughs> so, that was, so you, yeah, sure. you are, among many, many other things, you are not a Jubador. You are the Jubador. I am the Jubador. I, I, there are people who call themselves the Jubadors. That's a different band. Right. But apparently, I, I am now the the Jubador. Yeah, singular. So you you are the singer songwriter for, let's just say, the premier Jewish podcast in the universe. Right, which was not originally a life goal, uh, but that's that sort of happened in the last year. Such is the nature of serendipity, or or such is the nature of good things. They're often serendipity. The, the serendipity of nature. But, exactly. And Oppenheimer, Mark Oppenheimer. Yeah, Oppenheimer is is serendipity incarnate. Yeah, I think that's one of his daughter's names. <laughs> no, it's not. But it should be. Yeah. It should be. That's it's a. I think. What does Leah Leibowitz say that it's like uh, Little Women? Being it's like Jane Austen. Being it is uh, he's got all these brilliant daughters right. that are Louisa May. That are just amazing. So, but you, I mean, do you self-identify? Like with any, you don't self. Do you self-identify as Jewish, at least observantly, or you have some Jewish background? Observantly, no, I, I don't. I, I really, I, um, I mean, I, I have a menorah, and I try to do that to the best of my ability. But I, I self-identify. I think I would leave it at that. I mean, I kind of identify as who I am based on my experiences and whatever upbringing or, or uh, things I've been exposed to. Um, I, I don't think I could ever actually call myself a Jew in that particular way. Um, I definitely feel more Jewish when I'm being the Jupiter and I connect with, well, how could you not? <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> but you know, and the reason why, one of the reasons why I feel really comfortable doing it is because it's called unorthodox and I feel like I'm free to consider myself Jewish because I question whether or not I'm Jewish, which thanks again to Liel for think suggesting you know that that qualifies qualifies one as being jewish um Lael's like he could become america's rabbi he's really uh he, yeah, if that were a position yeah, he's got he's he's a wonderful i mean he's yeah it's kind of conservative politically but he's, uh, yeah. he's he's a really interesting guy um and a big leonard cohen fan as you know yeah yeah uh but self-identifying as jewish um so my uh my relatives, who I've gotten to know very well, are largely Jewish, meaning not that they're large, but that they are of Jewish extraction. Um, and then I have other relatives on my mom's side that um, are not. They're, they're kind of Christian. 
we're not really sure which kind of Christian. If you're kind of Christian, usually Episcopalian, Presbyterian. That's it. Presbyterian. Yeah, that's Presbyterian specializes in kind of Christian. I think it's Presbyterian. Kind of Christian, yeah. almost Christian. They, she grew up amongst Mennonites. She was not a Mennonite. There were Mennonites in the field. Oh, she, yeah. is this in Bucks County? It is in Bucks County. We yeah. just talked about that. I live in Bucks County. Right. Oh, so probably like Souderton area. I, I know. Okay. And now yeah. I know. If there are Mennonites close by, I know. Okay. So maybe I should just say she grew up near Mennonites in Bucks County, and then people would know. People will know. People is. in Bucks County know. Because we were talking about how that's, it's hard to place where she's actually from. It's a bit sprawling. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my dad's from LA, which is easier to talk about. And since Judaism is usually passed on maternally, is that kind of what you're like, hey? I'm not, I don't qualify. I've talked to, you know, the guys who come up and say, are you Jewish? I've told them my story, honestly, before. And they're like, we're sorry, but we can't do it with you because your mom's not Jewish. Who are the guys? guys? Uh, well, the, the Hasidic Jews. Oh. Who are, uh, a lot of them are in my neighborhood. I live uh, kind of on the border of Park Slope and Prospect Heights, near Crown Heights. So they're affectionately referred to as the Black Hats, which is something I've learned since uh, Working with an Orthodox. But, uh, so they've actually uh, approached you and sure. said, hey, we consider... Well, every- I, I look a little bit Jewish. Yeah. yeah. So I think I, I get approached and I'm like, are you Jewish? And uh, yeah, it was one time in the park and they asked and I was like, well, listen, I'm, you know, I guess I'm technically not, right? Because my mom's not. And they're like, yeah, you're right. You're not. Sorry. And then so I think that's a, mis- a bad outreach. You'd be a big get. Well, I could at least do the ritual with them. I feel, you know, it would be nice to do that. Like, if you think... I don't always want to do it, but it, you know. And you'd be an asset to the team. You're you're you're, you're a singer songwriter. You're a playwright. Right. You're, I mean, I th- I feel it's not like yeah, it's not like you're you're but somebody I, they have to carry along the field. Like you, you're really, I you know, I could be same, a franchise player. I think some, something I was taught growing up was to not feel comfortable in organized religion of any kind. So I don't really. So I, I would have a hard time actually officially belonging in that way. It's the you know. What about Scientology? Baha'i. No. I mean, I, I have a friend who's into Baha'i, and she's very nice. But, uh, I, I don't, well, I don't know enough about it. I checked out um, Nichiren Buddhism one time. Okay. Partially for screenplay research, but it was really interesting. It was uh, actually on, I think, 15th or 16th on the other side of Union Square. There's a big Nichiren Buddhist temple. And you walk into it, and it's it feels like thousands of people. Maybe it's like a couple hundred, but they're all sitting in a large kind of auditorium setup and they're chanting together. But they're, I mean, it's literally like the United Nations. It's people from all walks of life, all races, seems like all ages. Um, and they're all, you know, doing the and then they do the, uh, there's, I'm not, I don't know what the technical term is for, but there's a, a long passage that gets read. Um, and then they just kind of open it up and talk about things, sort of like I imagine a Quaker meeting to be. Um, and I, I apologize to people of all those faiths, and I'm getting the accuracy of what your faiths are <laughs> mixed up. But, you know, but that was kind of interesting. Uh, and I felt, the, you know, the energy in the room. So, I mean, I feel, yeah, you know, I identify with Siddhartha, like just kind of going around and experiencing all those faiths. Or is it like Woody Allen and, and Crimes and Misdemeanors, like, you know, just kind of what all those mean and if i think if you squish them all together and then subtract them i think that's where i am <laughs> it's, well, it's interesting that because you write i mean that song i mean as someone who's a christian and a minister it, 
like it, it, so the Hebrew Bible is a big part of my own. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, it's the biggest part of our book. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, and and, I, and, and, and it, like it, I felt emotional as you, I mean, I felt as you were playing it, I felt like you got. I felt like you got uh, a tradition that you don't self-locate in. Yeah. I think that's remar- a remarkable achievement. Well, I mean, like I said, like it's, it's all those and then uh, subtracted as well. I mean, I feel like it's, I did have a little white book and it was, you know, the only thing resembling a Bible that I had for a long time. I, I, did, I got into the, the St. James Bible book. The King James. King James, sorry. KJV, as they say. It's the whiskey. It's very interesting that that, you know, there's a, like, there's a group of Christians that, they call them King James only. And really, like, it's, it, it, which, I mean, the King James is lovely because the language is Shakespearean and it's yeah. great, but it's, it's, it's also, scholarship-wise, it, it, it's, you know, f- almost five five hundred. Yeah, you're talking centuries. We found more texts. We've gotten better yeah. at Hebrew and you know we've, yeah. we're just better. But they're just they'll say, hey, if the, the joke is, hey, for the KJV people, the Bible is good enough for Jesus. It's good enough for me. So they have people that really think if you're not reading the King James, the James you're yeah, not reading the that's Bible. Not the Bible. Yeah, which is fascinating. Right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I'm I'm teaching the Odyssey right now. Speaking of holy books. And we're talking about translations, different translations of it. Um, you know, Alexander Pope had a translation that everybody loved for a long time, starting in 1752. And it's rhyming couplets of the Odyssey, uh, which, you know, often very clever, but it's a little tedious and not really how the Odyssey is meant to be experienced. I sometimes I wonder, you know, we, we're seeing on reference, there's a, a lot of church services around. It, Luther posted the 95 Thesis on October 31st. So, the Sunday around then, a lot of times they'll commemorate that. And I was at a service because I had the day off and I was visiting a church and they sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And all this stuff rhymes. And I'm sitting here thinking, did it rhyme in German? Like, how much did we rearrange this? I bet it rhymed in German. It's very easy to rhyme in German. But then with the English, doesn't rhyme on the train. You know, yeah. I don't oh, know. Oh, I see. Is that, rhyme I'm saying the rhymes must have been different. Yes. Well, yeah, they, yeah, they have to be. Well, how do you translate any of those poets that are supposed to rhyme back I don't into know. another language? It's it's really it's interesting. So it's uh, speaking of Luther, it's not only his anniversary, but it's also the, kind of the birthday of this podcast, right? Yeah, we had our uh, yeah. I think it was, it was almost a year ago. Yeah, it was yeah. like like a, it was like a, last week was our anniversary. I'm well, happy birthday! From Thank you. The half Jupiter. Thank the half Jupiter. And, are are you fired? We would make you our mocking bard. We would we would hire I, you. I, you know, I could be a mocking bard and a jubiter. I think I, contractually, I feel like I'm very loose. I like that. This yeah. this is the advantage of being a sojourner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of being a flake. In some ways too. <laughs> Can't really commits, but you know. It's, yeah, it's interesting that that is, you know, the the fastest increasing religious group in the country are the nuns, and not the uh, Sally Field flying. Cut- Variety, but the people that don't get consciously identify as part of any religious tradition. Do they, do they call themselves nuns? Uh, that's the that's the because I I came up with that. No, that's that's the I mean, they were called nuns. When, nuns. I, when but, I was fourteen, I wrote a play about people who started a religion that's uh, called nonism. Wow, you were creative early. Yeah, that was my first play. 
And what was the religion? Well, it was meant to get out of an imaginary war that sort of like draft dodging. So they created a, a non-religion called nonism. Were you worried about dra- getting drafted? Uh, yeah. Well, I wasn't really. It was mainly my mom was worried that I would be drafted for you know, the Iraq war or any war. So she was she was that anxious that you could internalize it and come up with a play? Yeah. About well, I, yeah. I mean, it kind of fear lends itself to creativity sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Or, or paralysis. You either get out of your reptilian brain or... Explore it. Or the, the medulla oblongata. But that's, I mean, it's interesting because you're obviously, I would say, I mean, this may be presumption, but you're obviously a deeply spiritual person. I mean, it, it, if spiritual is defined as sort of yeah. being open to deep experiences of life, things that are the intangible, they, like... Yes, and I, and I, I would qualify as that, yes. And I think that, like, you have an increasing group of people that, you know, you look at, in America, you look at the numbers, they're not a ton of atheists. They're, they're there. I mean, you know, and they're still overwhelming numbers believe in things like God and spirituality and yet are skeptical of institutional religion or distance from it for various reasons. So is that a lonely, it, it, a lonely existence for for? spirituality or do you, is it do you th- think that things like the arts um do you find other kindred spirits that are people of depth really interested in the human condition and 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 kind of yeah are a different kind of spiritual community yes i mean i think there's an accepted agnosticism in the arts where everybody recognizes they're part of the whatever art it is they do part of that church first and foremost, and then if they bring to it some other kind of religion, that's possibly interesting or to some people kind of a turnoff. Um, I mean, I know some, you know, some really deeply religious artistic people, but they abstain from introducing that really into their, their theater, their direction, their playwriting. Um, because there, there's a little bit of a stigma, I think, about, you know, it's like back to Bob Dylan, you know, and he went through his, his major Christian phase. It really turned off a lot of people, got a lot of people upset that he was doing that. But, you know, why not? Why can't he do that? Um, but I think in the arts, there's a little bit of a fear of getting sucked into something that's considered to be evangelical in a way that somehow corrupts the art, whatever that art is. Do you, th- do you think that's it with anything, too? I think, I mean, because you can think of great Christian... Yeah. Like Flannery O'Connor, or you think, or Bob Dylan. If you say, you know, Mm -hmm. somebody a couple years ago said, "You sing this Christmas." I forget it was First Noel or something like that. You sing that like you're believer, like a believer. And he's like, "I am a believer." Yeah. And or Stephen Colbert, who's great, who's so thoroughly Christian, Roman, you know, Catholic. Yeah, he's Catholic. And well, that's the thing about. I mean, Catholics. I I know because I've been very close to lots of Catholics, including my wife and her family. And their thing is they they like to to do it and believe it, be part of that community, but they are very anti evangelizing. Very, they don't like to talk about it publicly in a way. They, they, in fact, they talk about the fact that they don't talk about it publicly. Like John Kerry, during that debate, was asked about his Catholicism, yeah, and yeah. his answer had to do with we don't really. You know, I I, I think Colbert's in a different because he does like to talk about it, yeah, but not. But he's not obnoxious about it, and it doesn't. I feel like anything, like whether let's say you're sort of an eco activist or you're an atheist or, you know, you're 
uh, activist political concern, whatever it is. If the art form, right, is just preaching that at me, I'll, I'm turned off. Like it's, yeah. I mean, we, whether it's right or left, religion. So the moment something becomes prescriptive, it's almost like the art is sacrificed on the altar of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I was surprised that I liked W, the movie. In Oliver Stone, like, right. no, I, and I, my, it, my, my politics are not far from Oliver Stone's in many ways, but. I thought, man, this is going to be some prescriptive rant. And it wasn't. And I actually wound up incredibly sympathetic. It was compassionate towards him. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was one of those things where I think sometimes if if the art is allowed to stand on its own, whatever influences. But if if you just shout at somebody with the art form. Yeah. Well, it sounds like our experience in the subway when people shout at us about their their religion. Usually it has to do with us going to hell. I'm not. So it's, yeah, it's kind of. Not pleasant. Yeah. You want to play something else? So this is incredibly like I've I've this is incredibly fun for me. I just want yeah. To say that. No, it's it's fun for me too. Uh, it's a whole new world. What should we should we what subject should we deal with? Anything? Uh, whatever you want to deal with. Are you want uh, what do you like? What's fun? What's your mood right now? Let's play. It's like that 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 Seinfeld where George is like yeah. When he's overpacking, I dress according to mood. Right. What mood is this? This is morning mist. Okay. <laughs> What's your mood right okay. now? Well, I guess I keep kind of playing the song on my head, so I'll play it again. Uh, this is another older song that was uh, definitely popularized with the with the Randy Bandits. We haven't even talked about it at all. Yes, yeah, let's talk of, about let's play this and talk Randy Bandits. This is always a good kind of intro strumming. This could go on forever. But. It's called Fight the Hungry Lions. First time I sang it was at a wedding, and those people are still married. And I've sung it at a few different weddings since. Mainly Christian weddings, I think. If you're a Christian in the New York metro area, this is possibly could be sung at your wedding. Sure. I will fight the hungry lions. Till my duty calls to rise I will try to keep on trying Through a silver lining tide I will wear a darker shade of red or blue I will do just what I'm made on earth to do As long as I can do it no, I'll get on through it as long as I can do it with you. I will wander greener pastures. I will tend forgotten weeds. I will squander your disasters. I will ponder last year's seed. I can do it with you. 
Jim Nabel, everybody. I just Facebook lived you. Is that okay? I didn't really ask you for permission. Why not? Four people tuned in, and an Episcopal priest from Texas who's moving to New Jersey. Like, who's this? And did, did the explosion oh, enthusiastic? Nice. There hi. you go. Hi, Texas. We're, uh, oh, cool. We're there. There we go. Uh, that was beautiful. Thanks. We just had to, for the first time ever, I've had to stop the recorder because fortuitously it was right at the end of that performance. Well, yeah. Or, or intentionally. Who knows? It's a Providence. It's a mysterious be. song. It's a, it's a, I always find it to be a special song because I feel like it's a commitment to, uh, you know, the person that I'm with. It's a commitment to join the people if it's sung for a wedding for them. But when I'm performing it at a, at a concert, it's a commitment to the audience that I that I will try to do this, that I will do all these things for the audience as well. That's it's um that's always a special song for me to sing, just to kind of re recenter myself with whoever I'm with. And you said you've sung this at several weddings. Yeah, it started at at a wedding in Nashville. Uh, my friend Will. Who's an auctioneer? Got married, and uh, that was the first time I sung it at a wedding. Actually, and I played it with a, a fiddle player who's really good, and he he played a solo between third and fourth verse. We didn't have a fiddle player with us today, so we just skipped the solo. Hope that was okay. Well, I mean, I play the fiddle. You should have told me. Really? No, no. I'm actually always looking for musicians. So, it's, do you play anything? I would have been a rock star if I had talent. Oh, I, I feel like I have the personality for it. Yes. Performative in nature, but I just You don't. could be one of those front men who just kind of shouts things. I do, like, I feel like I do the best, like, a Rolling Stone karaoke version out, a, out there. That's a hard key in karaoke. I'm, like, all, it's always hard in karaoke, whatever key. Like, I've got in Philadelphia at McGillan's, I got a double shot once, which is hundreds of people, and it's really hard to get to sing. That's great. Twice yeah. anyway, and they, 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 he let me sing. He picked it, but he picked a second Dylan song for me. So 
And I do a very good George Michael. Did you know all the words without looking at them or did you have to look? I I glance up, but I know most of them. Yeah. I'm a Dylan fan. Once upon a time, just so fine through the bumps of dying. Through the bumps of time, then you feel. Didn't you? Doing G? I bet I, I, I have been so fine through the bumps of dime. Didn't you? People call, call say beware, beware doll, you're bound to fall. Oh, other people get their kicks for you. I'm already totally butchering it, but Jimi Hendrix has sung this before and kind of butchered the lyrics before. So, yeah, I think we're in good company. I like that. I could pull the lyrics up. No, let's just do it. I, I feel self conscious. You used to laugh, laugh, laugh out. Everybody that was hanging out. Now you don't. Laughs laughs so loud. Loud. Like a rolling stone. That was the good. That was good. It's decent. Yeah. It's decent. Like, I got, you know, not like, the whole thing, but it's like the yeah, but it's commercial version. Yeah, it was. It was our. We're gonna do our Dylan. I was gonna say tribute, tribute mockumentary, mock you, mock you, mock you album. Yeah, yeah, something a mock you, <laughs> mock you. That's that's we've created a genre here. So you've said it all. And I feel like you've got much more to say, but like I don't want to take your time because you just got a text about avocados and wine. Yeah, I'm supposed to pick up an avocado and some wine on the way home. I, this is a time in our country where tomorrow everybody is going to wake up and a big chunk of people are going to be unhappy. Is that actually going to happen tomorrow morning? I mean, is it going to be done? I, I don't guess. know. I haven't really been, I've intentionally not been following along and I've been really busy all day. So we can't say. I mean, we're, we're in this weird. Uh, I mean, we're kind of in a cloistered, closeted moment here in this particular place that we're in. The in the sacristy. Yeah. But does, as an artist, is that? I mean, you already said that you've been working on stuff since 2014. That's been about issues of identity and and yeah. conflict and alienation around that. Do you think that'll be a continued theme? As sure. you, we're Americans. That's what we do. And in your own work, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I, I started gravitating more towards what's going on in the world since I became a parent. And that was like in 2010. So a lot of my plays have ended up being either either historical plays since then, or they've, you know, like based in history. I have a, a the time that Charles Dickens met Edgar Allan Poe play. And I have a play called The Reverend's Daughter, which is about uh, Civil War college students. And then I have plays that are kind of more contemporary. Since 2010, I seem to be writing plays that have to do with things that are going on in the world um, that often have to do with, you know, big misunderstandings or tensions between peoples, often in this country, sometimes outside. I mean, the draw to that, I mean, was there, did you grow up with a lot of conflict, things like that? I mean, were were, were you in a place where there was conflict around things like that? I think that was, that's probably why I was drawn to it. Sacramento is a very nice place to raise children. It's kind of 
it gives you just enough as a, as a kid growing up to make you realize that there are other places to go where there's kind of a little more of an intensity if you're looking for that. Uh, with all due respect to all the Sacramentans out there. Um, I didn't know that they were Sacramentans. Yes. Or Sacro Tomatoes. And Cake is from Sacramento. The band Cake. Oh. As are the Deftones. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I went to high school with one of the Deftones. I feel like there, that's always a thing where people are from. Like there was, I remember a taxi episode where Jim had set up all these TVs on the wall. And Judd Hirsch's character comes in. He says, what are you doing? Why are you doing? Well, you're watching. Well, I'm catching up on the world. And he says, there's a debate. Well, what? look over there. There's a debate on the Delaware State House. So what are they called? Yeah. Delawareites or Delawareans? And Judd Hirsch is like, this is absurd. Wait, they just voted for Delawareans? <laughs> so you always think, you know, if you're ites or Arians or. Right. You know, it's, Which it's, it's like always Seattleites. Right. New Yorkers. New Yorkers. You're not Ites or Arians. What are you if you're from New Jersey? New Jersey, and I guess. Well, New Jersey is a state. Well, it still could be a state. I grew up in Pittman, New Jersey, though. And there were, I did hear people say Pittmanites. Pittmanites, yeah. Sort of like Mennonites. <laughs> but different. Because they're more vulgar. They're from New Jersey. Right. Those would be the two big differences. Yeah. yeah. Hey, do you, I don't know, you wrote, you sent me something. That you played with the title Mockingbird in it. Oh, yeah. With your son. Your son, yeah. I mean, you and your son were kind of doing some creative stuff together. I was incredibly yeah. moved by it. Oh. I played it for my wife, actually. Okay. At the, at the Oxford Valley Mall. I said, You have to hear this. We were walking around, I think it's Saturday. I said, You have to hear this. So we were in the parking lot. Oh, wow. And I played it for her. Well, that, that goes out to Jameson Nabel, who's my, my son. Jameson. One of, one of my two sons, Jameson and Malcolm. His names be out there. You can take them out. I can take them out. Yeah. Uh, so I have a six-year-old son and a two-year-old son. Can't remember if I mentioned that or if that's you did gone the way of the recording after the song. Uh, but I was trying to come up with a song that had "Mockingbird" in the title. "Mocking Cast" was a little bit too on the nose. That "Mockingbird" has a little poetry to it. Um, and I was really unhappy with the lyrics because they're really general. So I I tried. Playing my first verse for him and then asking him to kind of just freeform over it. And, uh, I'm going to ask your permission this time. Can I Facebook live you as you sing this? Yeah, I'm going to have to dig out the lyrics. That's all right. I have it internalized like a Rolling Stone to the level that I could sing it with perfection. And I didn't, I've had many tries at it. You want to do it with harmonica or without harmonica? Oh, I mean... I've, I've never tried it with harmonica, just to warn you. So it, it could go lots of different directions. I have com- unswerving confidence <clears throat> in your yeah, abilities. I, mean, I haven't been playing a lot of harmonica lately, but I brought it along to that gig in Boston. And uh, that worked out. I know the lyrics. Oh, here we go. Uh, this is, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I don't think you have time to go into it, but 
if you want to see songwriting process, I have like a recording on my phone of his just kind of making up lyrics, which ended up being largely brilliant. And then at six, yeah, well, he, he likes to sing songs and make lyrics. To those songs. Wow, good he's stock. A, he's a chip off the Rolling Stone. <laughs> So then I, I took his lyrics. I kind of tried to do a transcription of most of them straight. That's the one that's in brown marker. I can't really see that. Wait, anymore. I'm in a live yeah. video right now. Here we go. Okay. To, so people can explain. Yeah. So shall I pause for that? Go ahead. There we go. Now you're live. You are live on the Mockingbird. This is Jim Nabel, everybody. And he is... Hello. He is a singer-songwriter, playwright, future guest on the Mockingcast, and right. we are here at St. George's um, Church. We are at the, what do we call it, the St. Udio? Yes, this is the St. Udio. St. Udio. It's like studio and Udio. And Saint. Saint. It's, yeah. We're just throwing them all together. And this is a song he's written for folks from Mockingbird, in spite, well, actually, right. and with the help of his six-year-old son. With the help son. of my six-year-old son, who came up with the majority of the lyrics. I've done some, some crafting, a little bit of editing. Uh, sometimes for some near rhymes and sometimes just because I'm controlling, but, uh, I was going to show some process here. This, so this is a transcription of the actual lyrics that are about, uh, a mockingbird and wanting to be free. Um, uh, his, his angle on it was really personal in terms of like how he feels as a six year old and how he feels kind of like he, he has this longing to be free. Six year olds are sort of proto teenagers. As are three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. It gets earlier it gets, and earlier. Like it just every, keeps going. Yeah, yeah. They, they want to be free. Um, so, I, and I, I do, uh, I take his sentiment very seriously. I, I like to point out that I'm not a controlling parent. I don't actually put my son in a cage. He's going to refer to a cage. There is no actual cage. So it's a symbolic. Allegedly. Right. Just. We're playing for an audience of five right now. Okay, let's, let's keep building while we're doing it. So these are lyrics by a six-year-old who is my son. Mockingbird, I will be free. I will be free without you watching me. Not in a cage I want. To go every place For the world outside is calling me Mockingbird, I want to go To every place in the world to find a home If I had a wish, I would visit Atlantic Avenue I'd visit California And even Sacramento I go to lots of different places I don't want to be caged up It's such a little cage It's off the ground It makes me feel so scared I don't like being up here I wish my mom and dad who are grown-ups Could let me feel free to own up But I can't talk to them I just go cheap, cheap, cheap I can't talk, you see 
They won't let me They want me in the house With all the other birds Who just want to fly Out from the window Mockingbird I will be free I will be free Without you watching me Not in a cage I want to go every place For the world outside is calling me For the world outside is calling me Jim Nabel, everybody. Thank that you. Was, that was uh, upcoming guest on the Mockingcast, and we're here in New York. This is for the Facebook people, not for the audio people. But we're here in New York recording right now. The Jubador of Unorthodox and maybe future Mocking Bard. So you talked about freedom there. Like, what, what do you think makes people feel free? Because we're in a consumer society. Yeah, I'm trying not to give you choices. the obvious answer to that question. I'm taking my nine seconds to process it and kind okay. of think about it. Because we're in a um, society where all of us have lots of choices, and the more choice, but the more choices we get, we don't always feel an in- a correlative increase in freedom. Well, he, I mean, his experience of freedom is really about he wants to wake up in the morning and decide to do something and be able to just do it. So he starts by saying, usually take me to Starbucks because he likes the bagels there, which I can't, you know, as a half Jew, I'm kind of offended by that, but that's just the way it is. Uh, I, I, mean, I like, you know, I like Starbucks coffee's fine and their health insurance is great. Um, Two out of three ain't bad. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's where he's at. He wants to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. And he's a six-year-old, so he doesn't get to. So a lot of a lot of the time, the answer is no, you can't do that. So I think his world is all about he wants to be free to just do it. And, I, you know, I feel terrible as a parent often just having to be that person who's always saying no to a six-year-old or no, no to a child. Um, and, you know, admittedly, some of the best times that I have and we have with him are when we can say yes and say, yeah, why don't we go take a subway from Atlantic Avenue to Church Avenue and then back again just because you want to go on a subway adventure. That sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. Or, you know, um, but then saying no all the time is, is where the, the I want to be free part comes in. So, I mean, it's easier to explain from the point of view of a six-year-old or, you know, a teenager or somebody who really wants to be free. I think for us, we have built our own cages and we feel caged by whatever society makes us do. I mean, you know, as an artist, um, I want to, I want to be free to just do whatever I want to do as, as an artist, but I have to make money at it. And, um, you know, I have to do responsible things. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I, I want to have a family. I want to have that connection and you know so it's 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 harder to say what freedom is when you're older i think um you know unless you're in a and a, a country or a civilization or a place that really limits your freedom in a significant way and i think a lot of people in this country feel like that um and they want to be free in a different sort of way uh you know as a relatively privileged white male uh that's that's not where i'm at most of the time and i you know i recognize that um 
we'll see what happens with the uh, the election. Well, I think that you and you. I mean, yeah, I think we all feel caged in different ways, and people wake up tomorrow and feel more caged than others. And while yeah. and sometimes our cages are. Um, we're oblivious to them or they're elusive but as an artist I mean I think your work helps us see the cages for ourselves and other people and for that yeah thank you well thank you yeah it's it's an honor to get to hold a position of being any kind of artist and to have anybody pay attention to you or care about what what you're saying or to feel needed by people as a creator that's that's a, a great privilege I never take it for granted. And yeah, I and thank you again. And I hope you'll come back and play yeah. more and talk more. Definitely. Thanks for having me. It, the pleasure was all mine. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. You can find more out about Mockingbird at our website, mbird.com. There's loads of great resources and reading material there and we publish a beautiful print magazine through conferences and a plethora of other things as we seek to make the Christian faith relevant to every area of life and if you like this podcast you can find it wherever podcasts are downloaded The Mockingcast and it comes out the regular edition of the podcast comes out on Fridays so we come to you every Friday and we have guests and talk about the content of our weekly wrap up Post another weekend, so please join us on Fridays. I'd visit Thanks for listening. California and even Sacramento. I go to lots of different places. I don't want to be caged up. It's such a little cage. It's off the ground. It makes me feel so scared. I don't like being up here.